When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Liverpool's Premier Hangover. Hello and welcome to episode 46 of this season's Real Football Cast. As always, I'm your host Dan Tracy and in the next 60 minutes we'll be dissecting all the hot topics in football. As per usual, we'll be discussing what's been going on in the Premier League over the past few days, while in addition to that, there are also some off-pitch activities that have caught our eye and they'll be getting our attention in the next hour. It's been another incredible week of football and this week we've once again got a full house. That means leading the line around the captain's armband is Carl. So Carl, how have you been since we last spoke? Yeah, really good, thanks Dan. I think we've got quite a bit to get our teeth into this week, so looking forward to this one, mate. Yes, there's loads. It's double bubble this week. There's so much football to get through. I mean, I mustn't forget your strike partner either. That is, of course, Drew. Drew, on the other side of the pond, how are things over there? Oh, doing great, Dan. Couldn't be more excited to talk about the Premier League because there are so many things, so many games. And uh, yeah, excited to be here, ready to do it. Top man. Right, before we do, let's do the social media bits first. Ours will be talking to the Abyss once more. So first, if you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter, at DanTracy1983. Also, the podcast has its own account, which is at Real Football Pod. If you want to become a shareholder, all you need to do is follow and join our very elite members club. You can find me via iTunes by searching for Real Football Cast. If you use that platform, don't forget to subscribe. And also, if you like it, leave a review so we move up the league table. And if you're not a fan of all things Apple, you can find me on SoundCloud and Audio Boom. While the easiest way to find all the links is by going to realfootballcast.com. Of course, don't forget our content partners at lastwordonfootball.com. Here you can check out the excellent work that Drew does, some of the work that I do as well after you've listened to this show. Right, it's time to go live. Where should we go first? Let's go to the Etihad, as Man City played host to Liverpool on Thursday night. Nothing was on the line, unfortunately. Not quite the Titanic title tussle we hoped for. That said, Cole, Liverpool certainly played as if they had a few celebratory drinks in their tank. Yeah, I have to admit, that game, I, I, I'm wondering how many of those Liverpool players were seeing double blokes <laughs> on the pitch that night. Because that certainly was a performance where you kind of got the impression that they were kind of struggling to get over that, you know, title-winning hangover. Um, I didn't think they started the game too badly, to be honest. For like the first 15, 20 minutes or so, you know, it, it was kind of a little bit end-to-end. And Liverpool had some really good opportunities where they could have taken the lead um, and you kind of think you know I wonder if they'd scored a goal whether that game would have potentially been different at all but unfortunately you know once the city train got rolling um, and, the, and the further the game went on you could see Liverpool players were obviously just drained um, you know then in the end just going through the motions just to get that game out of the way and kind of shake off that title winning hangover um, I don't think you can read too much in into that result um, it was a good win by City. You know, they put them to the sword when they had the opportunity to. Um, could have had a couple more easily. But I think you purely just write that off from a Liverpool point of view. As You know, the first game after winning it was always going to be a bit of a letdown, I think, given what's gone on before it. Um, and they'll just move on, pick themselves off, get over the partying and, and they'll be back into full flow. Yeah, I can't argue with that. I think Andy Robertson looked drunk. Like, it just looked like it was just on a completely different planet. But I think <laughs> Liverpool, <laughs> Liverpool certainly... I mean, there was a few of them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Say, walk, He's walk a lightweight. Line. Carries yeah, over. Struggle. I think, you know, they've certainly earned the right to do so. But, Drew, with City having to give Liverpool a guard of honour, do you think that was a case of, right, that's where the niceties ends? You're not getting a freebie out of us. They gave him quite a bloody nose by the end of it. Does that sort of say... We're not going anywhere. We'll be back next season. Or as Carl says, it's such a freak result. Just you can't read too much into it. No, I, I'm with Carl here. I don't think you can read too much into it because, like you said, I, I think the uh, the beers were wearing, weighing down Liverpool from a few days before the match took place. Right? You saw Bernardo Silva. Maybe he's the most indicative of City's frustrations or anger at, at giving a guard of honor and having to uh, 
Um, praise Liverpool for that moment. But I think next year at Liverpool, they're going to be motivated once again. Manchester City, assuming they still have Pep and all the different players, you know, if they don't leave, if they get banned from Europe, they're going to be pressing hard again next year. And the two of them are going to be in another battle for the title. So I don't think this match is any indication of, you know, oh, look, come next year, City's going to be able to beat them. I, I think this game was actually more even than the scoreline uh, shows. Not not to say that Liverpool deserved a win or anything like that, but possession was a lot closer than you would think, shots, different things like that. I think for Liverpool right now, they, they have nothing else to play for, right? They've won the title. They don't have any fans. They're not in the FA Cup. They're not in the Champions League. So, I mean, their season is pretty much over. And so I think it's really hard for them to maintain the form they had throughout most of the season and bring it into a game now against a really good Manchester City side when really it doesn't matter. I know they're your rivals, especially the past few seasons. I know you always want to get one over on one of the best teams in the league, but I think this was pretty expected because of the celebrations they had. So I'm not reading too much into this game. I think it was one result that's very isolated and is not indicative of anything to come for the rest of the season or for next year between these two teams. Carl, that defeat, like we've sort of said, it's not going to matter anything to Liverpool. Jurgen Klopp, though, not the best of losers afterwards. Does that come down to just being an innate winner and the fact that you lose so rarely then becomes quite difficult to take when you ask those kind of questions afterwards? Yeah, I, I think so. You know, obviously he he set some high standards, haven't they? Um, so so they are definitely looking to kind of you know they they wouldn't have wanted to lose the way they did um, to City, would they? You know, as much as obviously we can accept it's a freak result, I don't think that would have been an easy result to take for them because they've they've set such high standards and expectations, and I think in a way you probably find that Klopp obviously has also just wanted to send a message to sort of say, look, listen, it's a one-off, but let's make sure this is a one-off. I don't want to see this kind of thing continue for too long. Um, but yeah, when, when you're a winner, it doesn't matter what the circumstances, you don't like losing, do you? And, and it's hard to take. And I, I think that's all you were seeing from Klopp there, a little bit of frustration. Um, and obviously, I think just trying to send a little message. Drew, it was quite an emphatic first half performance from City. A game where Phil Foden played further forward, got on the score sheet. I thought he looked quite good. Do you think next season is the one where he finally gets those more regular minutes? It's been sort of on the, I guess, the agenda for quite a while, but there's always been a bit of a logjam in front of him. If you take Silver out of the equation and Foden's age getting more to, I guess, not quite an established player, but getting there, is next season the real breakthrough? Yeah, next year should be Phil Foden's breakout year. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of age. He's getting there. He's had enough of this kind of buildup over the past couple seasons of getting a few minutes here, a few minutes there. Um, but David Silva leaving. And then I think most importantly is you see Foden right now playing very well and not just this match against Liverpool, right? He's had a few performances since the restart where he's really shown his quality, right? Whether that's scoring, whether that's passing and setting up teammates, you can see that he definitely has the ability um, at youth level, whether that's, you know, with England or, or with Manchester City, you've seen it as well. And so, yeah, next year should be Phil Foden's breakout year. I think anything other than that would be a disappointment. He's showing right now that he certainly has the ability. He can hang with the big boys, right? He doesn't look... Uh, off the pace or anything, playing with you know the the rest of the Manchester City crew essentially, and so yeah, next year he should. I, I mean honestly, next year Phil Foden's target should be to win the Young Player of the Year award. Anything less than that, I think, would be a disappointment because that's kind of the trajectory he's on, and he should have that opportunity to be playing more with Silva going out, with Man City possibly banned from Europe and things like that. And with his ability, that should be his target. And anything less than that is a disappointment. Yeah, I think it's a very fair shout. I think even for him, if City aren't going to use him, then loan him out or something. He's at the point where he's got to get more regular minutes under his belt. And I think City know that. And I think next season will be the one. But talking of City, Cole, they do the sublime against Liverpool, the ridiculous against Southampton three days later. That said, Che Adams' first goal for the Saints was quite the strike, wasn't it? And when it's that good, it's almost worth the wait. Yeah, um, you know, it, that's one of them, isn't it? That You can attempt that so many times and you either, you know, don't get it on target, sky it right over. But it was the perfect strike, wasn't it? You know, he spotted the keeper off his line, um, went for it, got the nice curl, the nice drop just before. Uh, and it's a beautiful looking goal, definitely. Um, 
But again, really weird with the City performance, wasn't it? Because it was just off the mark, you know, made some changes. Um, you'd have thought just coming off the back of that Liverpool result, um, they'd, they'd want to kind of continue from that. But they, they just seemed a little bit flat as well, didn't they, in that performance? And, you know, as much as they had the majority of possession and kind of, you know, constantly were just going forward, there wasn't that real cutting edge or spark about them that we saw a few days earlier against Liverpool. Um, you know, bringing De Bruyne on late on in the game, um, you know, made some changes. We know took Mares off early, which I didn't understand why he took him off um, when he did. But, yeah, I think now they probably looking. They they made their statement against Liverpool. You know, they didn't like. You could clearly see they didn't like doing the guard of honour. Um, so I think they put a performance in there. Maybe they gave as much as they could in that Liverpool game, and then obviously, yeah, you know, just can't reproduce that a few days later. They're maybe saving themselves now for the Champions League um, and the FA Cup. You know, that's I think now their main two priorities. So maybe they just wanted to make that statement against Liverpool and now just reserve themselves for the bigger things coming their way. Well, exactly. I mean, no disrespect to Southampton, but do you need to be going full throttle when there's nothing on the line, when you've got bigger prizes in other competitions still to play for? So I guess that's where the six changes came from. Drew, is that the reason that they lost? Or do we have to give a lot of credit to a Southampton side that defended very well, especially Jack Stevens? Yeah, I think Southampton definitely deserves a lot of credit for this because they stood on their head. I mean, McCarthy had, what, half a dozen incredible saves as well. Jack Stevens was great at uh, in central defense, as, as you mentioned. So I think you do have to give credit to Southampton in a lot of ways, right? I mean, we talked about it on this show however many months ago it was. We thought Ralph Hausenhutl, or at least I did for sure, oh, yeah. thought Hausenhutl was going to get fired after they got blasted at home by Leicester. And yet now he's turned it around where not only did they give him a new contract, but they're starting to form the academy kind of around his ideas as well. They want to play this, you know, 4-2-2-2 system, you know, and at times you've seen it work. And so I think Hausenhutl deserves a lot of credit. I think the players on the pitch for Southampton deserve a lot of credit because they played very, very well. And as Carl mentioned, right, with Che Adams' goal, they took their chances when they had the opportunity, right? Because against Manchester City... Yes, their their defense is poor this year, um, but you don't get many of those those chances, especially when they dominate possession like they did in this game. So when you get that one opportunity, you can't miss it, and Southampton didn't. And so I think they deserve a lot of credit for this game. In terms of City, this is I, I think Pep said it after. This is another example of how their season has gone. Uh, an error in defense. I know Zinchenko really is a midfielder. Uh, who just happens to play left back. But their defense gave the ball away for essentially a silly reason. He was just slow on the ball, not, uh, I, I don't want to say not taking Southampton seriously, but was not really uh, paying attention, so to speak. Gave the ball away, and then Che Adams looks up and sees Ederson off his line. That's exactly how Manchester City lose, defensive errors. And so I think this game was a perfect uh, example of how their season has gone. But overall, again, I think you have to give a lot of credit to Southampton because they certainly earned this victory. Right, we've got so much to get through. It wouldn't be an episode without some VAR chat. Two flashpoints on the agenda. Carl, I'll start with you. West Ham's disallowed goal against Chelsea, where Suchek scored, but Antonio's sort of head and body was deemed to be offside. What's your take on that one? Yeah, again, you know, I, I don't really know how Antonio's meant to get out of the way. Um, in that situation, you know, it's so harsh on the player, isn't it, and the team? Because Antonio's down. I don't really know what more he can do to try and get himself out of the way of that. Um, and again, I think that one you just look at as being harsh um, and kind of, you know, you can sit there and say, and again, we go back to what we're saying all the time, isn't it? That they're not the sort of things we want to see VAR getting involved in and ruling goals out because of. Um, and VAR really hasn't 
you know, over the last few incidents that have come up, VAR really hasn't done itself any favours because, you know, I, I was all in, I was all in favour of bringing it in um, this season and getting this technology to help the referees and everything. But the way it's been done, I do just feel we're all fed up of it now, aren't we? And and if you said to me tomorrow that we go back to just how it was before VAR, um, then I, I'd take that all day long because I think what we've seen this season um, has just kind of made it look a farce. Drew, you get the Lucas handball that ruled out Harry Kane's goal a day later. Me and Carl lamented this at length, so we'll take a more neutral stance because we like your point of view. What's your take on that one? Yeah, so... I, I don't know if we're allowed to cuss. I guess we've oh, never yeah. talked about this. No, you can't. I'll drop one in. That call was bullshit. <laughs> I mean, honestly. No, it was. No, and, it was. and you guys know I'm a Chelsea fan. I, I don't have any bias towards Spurs whatsoever. But Lucas Moura was on falling to the ground on the ground. The ball was kicked at him, essentially. He didn't reach his arm out to extend or try and you know cheat in any way, shape, or form. No, that goal should have stood for Harry Kane. I, I understand... You know, the rule is is very strict in the way that it's written or the laws of the game are very strict when it comes to handballs leading up to a goal. But I, I really didn't think that directly led to the goal. I thought it was far enough back in, in the in the phase of play, so to speak, that it shouldn't have been considered. And plus, I mean, that turned the game on its head because that could have been Spurs' opportunity to to make a game of it. And unfortunately, that was taken away from them. I thought that was that was a fair goal by Harry Kane. I did not like the handball call at all. And I think most importantly, I think in this situation, again, I understand the way the laws of the game are written. It's very strict. But referees, VARs are paid for their judgment. And in this case, I think they should have judged that, you know what, I get that's the law of the game. And yes, that's their job. But that, to me, should not have been ruled that way. VAR should not have taken that goal away. I think it should have been allowed. And in this case, the, the rule was either misused, misinterpreted, or or really uh, written wrongly. I know that doesn't apply to this game. It's You have to go to IFAB for that. But this was an absurd call. I'm with Carl. VAR is continuing to show that it's going at such minutia of details that I think it really is taking away from the game. Because, I mean, how many Sheffield United players were arguing that call? I don't remember any. The one that Carl was talking about, Suchek's goal against Chelsea, how many Chelsea players were arguing that Antonio was offside or he was impeding Kepa, whichever one? Nobody. You know, when, when the players aren't even arguing, I think that's the most telling sign. They don't feel aggrieved, therefore the call shouldn't be uh, changed or VAR shouldn't step in. And so this one for Harry Kane and Tottenham, I think it was an egregious mistake from VAR, and it was absolute nonsense. It, it, it was the wrong call every single time. I, I don't think there really is a debate other than if you want to say, well, technically, the laws are. If you have to say technically, you know you're wrong. Yeah, I just think the, the laws are too rigid. We spoke about this before. It's just like, and as you just said, Drew, the minutiae is just sucking all the life out of the game. I, I still like VAR as a concept because it should be a benefit to the game, the officials, we should be sort of better for it, but we're not. And I just think that, you know, where we are, the, the referees, they can't seem to be going, actually, it's week 33, let's apply some common sense, because why weren't they doing that earlier in the season? So I just think it's so rigid. Well, you, you had it as well in the City game, didn't you, Dan, with oh, the yeah. goal that was disallowed there. And, and again, you're sitting there going, that ball, it may have touched Foden's hand while he's on the floor. But it hasn't diverted that ball away from a defender. That means it was an obvious, you know, oh, that defender was going to win it till it hits that hand. There was still far enough the guy has to go with the ball before putting it in the net where you could say, well, that handball has had no effect on what's happened after, um, after it. And I honestly believe those few decisions that we've had, the only good thing I think that will come out of this, I think the more a handball one is the straw that breaks the camel's back yeah. and makes them have to look at these rules for next season and go, yeah, hold on a minute. We do need to change this somehow. And, you know, we've got to reword the rule. I feel sorry for the officials because, like as we said, we've spoke about this, haven't we, Dan? If you're Michael Oliver that night, you're sitting there probably thinking, I don't want to give this as handball. But if I don't, I'm hauled in front of a committee 
and asked, why are you not giving that as an ball? Because it's it struck his hand. And then you're possibly facing some form of, you know, discipline action. So you're giving it because you know you need to, because you're going to be in the shit if you don't. But I bet you, if you ask all of them privately, did you want to give that? They'd go, of course I didn't want to give it. That's a ridiculous decision to have to give as handball. Um, and I'm hoping that those couple of things we've seen so far will at least make people go, yeah, we've got to change this because these are jokes. Drew, we can't let you off the hook because obviously we have to talk about Chelsea's slip-up against West Ham. I don't think anyone saw that one coming, especially as third place was on the table what, 90 minutes before. So what's your take on a dramatic game in East London? Yeah, it was a very disappointing result for Chelsea because, like you said, they had the opportunity to leapfrog into third and they didn't take it. Kind of like we talked about City, this Chelsea loss to West Ham was very emblematic of their season, right? They had defensive miscues and um, set pieces were a nightmare for them, right? Suchek essentially had two right, because the one from VAR that was chopped off, and then in stoppage time in the first half, he got another one from a corner on pretty much the exact same type of play where he just rose up above the defenders and and beat Azpilicueta to it. And then defensively, there was the air for the last one where um, maybe you could argue Marcus Alonso was too high up as Chelsea were throwing numbers forward to try and get a winner. You know, you can you can get mad at Rudiger for not shuttling Yarmolenko to his to his right side and said, letting him cut back on his left foot, fine. Um, but Chelsea's defensive problems have been their Achilles heel this entire season. And so I don't think it's a shock that that was what hampered them in this game. I think M- Mikhail Antonio did a very, very good job. Um, I don't think he really received enough credit. I think too much has been blamed on Chelsea's central defenders in the match, Antonio Rudiger and Andreas Christensen. Um, but I think you have to give West Ham credit for taking the opportunities when they did because they're in a relegation fight, right? They have pressure on them just as much as Chelsea has pressure uh, to finish top four. And so I think West Ham, uh, for you know the most part, deserved this win, essentially. For yeah. Chelsea, the one, the one good point I want to uh, talk about definitely, Captain America, once again, <laughs> running the show. Oh, of course. I mean, he, he drew the penalty. He helped... Uh, or he drew the foul for the free kick that William banged in as well. So, I mean, right now he is undroppable in the Chelsea squad. And I love to see it. I think he still needs to be a little bit more consistent um, because this year, right, he's had injuries and, and, and different things. But as long as he can stay healthy and he can consistently be this game changer for Chelsea that it has been, he should be starting every game from here on out. And he should be starting next season, even when Werner comes in, Zayek and, and whoever else they might bring. Uh, Christian Pulisic has been phenomenal since the restart, and I'm loving every single minute of it. Yeah, he's certainly giving Lampard a, a nice problem to have start next season. He's also now living up to that £57 million price tag. Certainly been Chelsea's best since the restart. Cole, from a Spurs fan point of view, when you watch that game, there's no real winners. You just, you know, who do you back? That said, it's always good to see some form of slip-up. Personally, I've quite look, quite liked the look of Suchek for West Ham since the restart. He's only on loan at the moment. I would imagine his future is linked to West Ham's survival. If they do survive, do you reckon he'll be one of their first bits of business? Yeah, he, he's looking pretty good, isn't he? Um, and I guess the only trouble is for West Ham right now is if he kind of continues through to the end of the season like that, then you could think there'd be a few other clubs maybe alerted to, to him. And you never know. Obviously, there could be another bid coming. And another other teams start showing interest. And if those other teams obviously look like they got a bit of a better future game for them than West Ham do at the moment, then you think they might have a headache with who he chooses. But I tell you now, if if he carries on the way he is, because he is looking he is looking pretty good, then I would say West Ham should definitely make that one of their first bits of business. I think they'll stay up. I think the teams below them are just so bad that. West Ham will by default get lucky this season in the sense that they'll stay up just by scraping a couple more points together um, and yeah I, I, if I'm in charge of their transfer policy I'm definitely getting a permanent contract in his face as soon as possible Get it signed but Drew Yarmolenko he got the winner against Chelsea he seems to be more of an impact sub being used by David Moyes now there's always fleeting glimpses of talent that goal being one example of how good he can be at the same time, there's always a question mark over his long-term fitness, which I guess holds him back from getting those regular minutes. 
Yeah, I mean, the the thing with Yarmolenko is he's had his opportunities to be a starter, to be one of the the forwards up there that is running the show, but he hasn't really taken his opportunities. I, I think you're right. Fitness is one concern, um, but with him, it seems as if right now, especially with West Ham needing to survive, I think right now his success as a super sub, you don't want to mess with it. So as as unhappy as he may be, it's only five more games for the rest of the year. So if I'm David Moyes, I keep him on the substitutes bench until the 70th minute or later and only bring him in knowing that he's going to have fresh legs going up against a tired defense because that's when he's been successful. I mean, against Chelsea, you saw on this counterattack to, to win the game for them that he was able to use his pace. He was able to to take advantage of a, I mean, granted, Antonio Rudiger was having not the best of games anyways, but to take advantage of a defender who was was already tired and already leggy. And so I think for these last five games, even though I agree with Carl, the teams below West Ham are just absolutely trash right now and can't score, I think West Ham, you still have to be a little bit leery. And so if he's going to be your best option off the bench, and he's going to provide you that spark to get you a late goal to either draw or win. I think you have to keep that ace in the hole, keep him in your back pocket. I don't think he should be starting really for any of these last five games because West Ham need to get as many points as possible. And he's going to provide that opportunity or, or he's going to he's going to be the best for West Ham to do that if he's coming off the bench. Cole, we talk about West Ham's points, four from six which when you consider the order they got those four was a bit of a surprise. But that said, no matter how they come, incredibly welcome for the East London outfit. Yeah, that I, you know, I'll be honest with you. Those two games, I never saw them getting a point at all out of either of those games because, you know, Chelsea were flying. Um, Newcastle have been playing pretty well. And obviously, you know, West Ham don't travel that 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 greatly. Um, so, like I say, for them to get four points out of that, I think that for me, that was their, you know, safety. You know, that was safety for them getting those four points because I think even they might have looked at them and go, we might struggle here the way we've restarted and we're playing. Um, but they've looked pretty good, West Ham, you know, to be honest. In, in that Chelsea game and the Newcastle game, you know, when you consider in the Chelsea game, you know, to show the character from having the goal disallowed, going behind, managing to get themselves back, then going behind again to have the character to, you know, get themselves back in it the way they have and then win it eventually and then go to St. James's and in all honesty, probably with a better side overall. Um, I think now, like I say, those two performances have have made them safe and I could probably see them picking up more points before the end of the season. Um, Unfortunately with West Ham, it's just hot and cold, isn't it? You know, they'll have them two games and then knowing now they'll probably go on a run where they don't win out of their next three or four, four fixtures. Um, they just need to try and get some consistency in their performances. Um, But it does show that, when they actually go at teams rather than just sit back like when they played Spurs and they showed no intention, um, they're better off playing on the front foot and trying to cause teams problems. But as well, also been really impressive, Antonio. I think he does such a great job for them up top. Um, And I'm surprised some, you know, other teams are not looking at him because I think he could probably do a job for sides higher up the table. Drew, it's been nothing but misery for the teams that West Ham are now starting to leave behind. So let's start with Watford first. They felt the wrath of Chelsea. Obviously, they were looking to bounce back from that defeat to West Ham. With Watford, I think it's more the other team's inability to score points, which is doing them the biggest favour at the moment. Yeah, Watford right now is definitely hanging on by a thread. I mean, they're only a point outside of the relegation zone. And, you know, in this match against Chelsea, you saw that they really don't have much creativity, right? No matter no matter how hard Kapu and Decore try in the midfield, they're really not the guys that are going to be setting up a ton of goals every single year. Um, and so for Nigel Pearson, I think he's got to be extremely frustrated that he's not getting more out of, out of his squad. Um, the one saving grace is everyone below them is doing even worse than them. I mean, you know, is is Myla Sarr, who you know was the hero of the victory over Liverpool, did pretty much nothing in this match, also against Chelsea. And so for Watford right now, I think really it's 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 not a it's not a great escape that they are that they are building right now or or trying to manufacture. It really is just 
survival of of the fittest amongst the weakest essentially is, <laughs> is what it is it. yeah and and so you know good luck to them you know for for any team that doesn't get relegated congratulations but i don't think you can be confident at all if you're a watford side i mean in this match they got shut out once again against southampton uh uh the the match before that right they only had one goal as well and they were absolutely horrific defensively so i mean watford right now they don't really have much to celebrate or much good going on within the squad or on the pitch i think nigel pearson is really right now ripping out his hair or maybe he's ripping out his players hair not his own because right now they're not doing anything positive and the only reason they're going to stay up is because everyone below them is far worse one of those teams, Cole. I, feel, I think then I think their next game is 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 their survival chance, isn't it? It's Norwich. They Norwich. play Norwich. Yep. They play Norwich, and I think to be honest, win that one, and I think they essentially see themselves. So, so tonight, if you're if you're if Watford are not going, uh, you know, hell for leather tonight, because I think three points tonight probably seals their their safety. Well, this is it. It's a massive opportunity. If they don't take three points, then it gets a little bit nervy in that area. One of those teams which is doing their best... Well, actually, no, they're not doing their best. They're doing their absolute worst to claw themselves out. Bournemouth. Five straight, <laughs> five straight defeats. Five goal ships at Old Trafford. Now, Carl, admittedly, scoring two might give Eddie Howe something to work with. But then you look at the performance overall and you think there's not really enough to go on at the moment, is there? Yeah, I, I think they're gone. You know, I just think it's a team that, you know, they they look shot, to be honest. I think Eddie Howe, when you look at him, I think he looks shot and lost of ideas as what he can do to try and change it. Um, and I think we, you know, we had this discussion, I think, throughout the season, didn't we, where it's a bit like, as has Eddie Howe just probably stayed too long at Bournemouth, you know, one season too long before trying to look to progress his career. And I think this is a season where it will show that it's like, yeah, you know what? You've taken the club as far as you could. You can't get no more out of them. Um, and, you know, right now, the players are looking kind of lost and beaten. The manager looks lost and beaten. And, and I can't see them being able to get themselves out of it. You know, their only hope could be they have Dr. Tottenham next. So, yeah, if you've not scored for ages or not won a game, then Tottenham <laughs> are definitely the team you want to be facing next because they're likely give you... We're probably looking at, a, you know, a King and Wilson masterclass on <laughs> Thursday night. <laughs> <laughs> for each... 6-0 win and everything's looking rosy again at Bournemouth but no, they do look lost don't they and I, I think you know once they drop I, I fear for them as to kind of what their future could be Yeah because they're sort of pretty much bankrolled by one rich benefactor, a small stadium you wonder if they've got the appetite to chuck more and more money to get back in it's going to look difficult for them if you're investing in Eddie Howe, if you had invested two seasons ago or more your stock's probably at an all-time low. You might want to take what you can from it because, like you say, Carl, he's cutting a very full-on figure. The idea as well is run dry, basically, and I think they'll be playing championship football next season, which, when you look at Aston Villa, Drew, might be the same conclusion. Now, they looked OK against Liverpool, but that's against a Liverpool team that, as we've said, are, you know, they've taken their foot off the pedal completely. They're easing the train into the end of the season station. So, once again, Villa's deficiencies in defence, the let's give the opposition two goals, has once again come home to roost and cause them more problems. Yeah, Aston Villa right now. I mean, defence has been their nightmare all year, right? They they have scored quite a bit this season, uh, maybe not as much after the restart. And so that was going to be their saving grace. But right now they haven't, right, against Liverpool. And yes, of course, Liverpool's good, but kind of like we've talked about, they've kind of been on the beach. Against them, Aston Villa wasn't able to score, right? Uh, the match before that, against Wolves, they also lost at home, getting shut out once again. And so that's the nightmare right now is for Villa, is they aren't able to find the back of the net. Jack Grealish, it seems as if his superpowers have maybe not diminished, but at least gone cold for the moment. And he was really, you know, he was going to be the one man that could single-handedly drag them to safety. And it looks like right now, He's not going to be able to. And, I mean, that's a lot to put on his shoulders. For for Jack Grealish, as good as he is, to have him single-handedly carrying the entire team match after match is, is a difficult task. And especially now, right, at home, they don't have the fans behind them 
um, to, to give them that extra boost and that extra oomph uh, in, in, the, in the dying stages of a match. So I don't really have a lot of hope for, for Aston Villa, right? I, I've tried to be not a fan, uh, essentially, not a supporter, but I've tried to, to, to be a fan of them. And, and you know what? I think they're going to pull it off. And it's just every game they show they can't do it. And so I think there's no hope for them right now. I, th- I think Aston Villa is, is one of the other teams that's pretty much guaranteed to go down at this point. I mean, if you look at their schedule, they still have to play Manchester United, who is bang on in form, right? They have to play Everton, who possibly could put in a good performance, right? So I don't think Aston Villa have a favorable schedule enough to even really give them a glimmer of hope. I think you're right. I mean, as a neutral, you'd like Aston Villa West Ham on the final day to have something that would define relegation or not, but I don't think it would even get to that. And I think the same will be said for Norwich, Cole. A big fixture took place on Saturday, Norwich versus Brighton. If we focus on Brighton, they took the biggest leap to survival with that win. I think really it's done now. Not mathematically, but you'd be very surprised with the teams below them getting that many points to overtake them with such few games. Graham Potter got a new contract, and I think February, that decision has proved dividends because Brighton have looked really good since the restart. Yeah, that they've come, they've come back and been quite impressive, haven't they? Because you know, just before that kind of the break came in. They were looking a little lost. And again, they were looking like one of them teams that you suddenly feared they could get sucked into this again. And I think we questioned, you know, at the early part of the season, you know, the way they were looking was like, well, what did you sack Chris Hutton for this for? Because has there really been much improvement? But I have to say, since the restart, I've been really impressed with the way they've played. They've got some fantastic results. Um and now, as you say, that win against Norwich, that is them well and truly safe. They can look forward to another year in the Premier League. I guess their problem's going to be, you know, a bit. they're, they're going to end up being a bit like Bournemouth at some point, aren't they? They won't ever be able to keep hold of their best players. The minute they have a player who has a really good season, they're just going to get, you know, picked off them by the bigger sides above them. And that doesn't even mean the top four. You're talking the likes of Newcastle and teams like that, you know, Everton. They will always come in and pick your best players from you. Um, So it's just they've got to try and find gems, haven't they? You know, maybe from the championship, you know, from abroad and just hope that they can, you know, keep that momentum going. But a really good end to the season for them. Uh, And it uh, will be a morale boost that they can start next season feeling confident. And Drew, Norwich, they look consigned to their fate now, don't they? Like Bournemouth, they've lost their last five. And although relegation is not mathematical just yet, we're looking at days rather than weeks when that actually happens. Yeah, Norwich are definitely going down. And I mean, you could see after this match against Brighton, right? Todd Cantwell and some other players, they sat out on the pitch or, or on the substitutes bench just in disappointment. They didn't go back into the dressing room. And because I think they themselves realize that even though it's not mathematically certain, I mean, definitely it is that they're going down. You could see them kind of looking around saying, you know what, guys, this is it. We tried our best. We gave it our best shot. And it wasn't good enough. I mean, since the restart, Norwich have only scored one goal in five matches, and they've given up 11 of them. So, you know, the, the misery that they had throughout most of the season has pretty much continued, maybe even maybe in a more extreme form right now, essentially, without being able to score. And so, you know, one thing that at least was on, you know, a lot of American media uh, for the Premier League after this match was, oh, you know, the players, they don't believe in, in manager Daniel Farka anymore. They've given up on him. That's why they didn't go in, in the dressing room for the team talk after the match. And, and I don't think, Maybe that's true, but I don't think it should be because, right, last year he did a great job with them in the championship, uh, winning it. And then this year they have had some good performances, like when they beat Manchester City. You know, the the style of play that they have, they have stuck to it. They've said, you know, even even if it's going to make us essentially finish dead last and get relegated again, this is how we play best and and we're going to stick to it no matter what happens. And so I do like that backbone shown by by Farka they're still going to try and play out of the back they're still going to try and you know get low crosses into Timo Pukki even though against Brighton uh he didn't start for some odd reason um but for Norwich I think it's pretty much done and dusted their their players know it I think the manager knows it they shouldn't be checking out mentally they shouldn't be giving up on their manager maybe that's the case um but you saw it on their faces after this match they know that they're 
you know, Premier League fairy tale season is is essentially over now. Carl, when we look at their goal average, it's 0.76 per game, which is very stark reading. And no matter how hard you try on the pitch, that ultimately is the currency which is either going to keep you up or down in a division. Yeah, I think, you know, for those sides that are coming up, the goal scorer is the all-important thing, isn't it? Because, like as you say, it, goals are what's, goals are what are going to help you win matches and help you survive. If you don't have people putting the ball in the back of the net regularly, then you're in real trouble because those sides normally get caught out defensively quite a bit throughout the season. Um, so at least if you're able to get a couple, you stand a real chance. But as you say, that stat for their goals there, that 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 just tells you their problem. Um, and, and that, I think, is, you know, when we've seen teams come up and go straight back down, that is normally their Achilles heel that has caused them the biggest problem. They just haven't had a goal scorer that can get them enough goals to make them survive. If we loop it back to Villa, obviously we mentioned their Achilles heel is more defence. With that said, Drew, could they become the new Fulham? Because they've also had a crack and spent 100 million plus, you know, quite substantial amounts of money over the season. They're set for a quick return to the championship. Does that now risk a financial black hole at Villa Park? I'd imagine one crown jewel in Greenish will be gone in the summer, but how many more will follow? Yeah, I mean, I, I think Aston Villa is... Why? I, I, here's the thing. I think a lot of the players would like to leave. I don't know how many teams are going to be banging down the door to sign some of these Aston Villa players minus Jack Grealish. Um, but I, I think the an even bigger issue for them which is going to exacerbate their their Fulham issue uh, that we saw from the season before, is there's no fans, right? So they're even going to lose out on that potential revenue, right? Even if they do sell Jack Grealish, are they really going to be able to sell him for for top dollar? Because team, uh, you know, buyers don't really have that much cash available either. And so I think that's going to be a big issue for, for Aston Villa. I think another player that's probably going to go is John McGinn. I think he's had a very, very good season and deserves to leave. Maybe Douglas Louise. I thought against Liverpool, he actually put in a very good performance uh, as as that holding midfielder. I think Tyrone Mings is probably a lock to leave as well. I think a lot of teams, maybe Chelsea, could use a a, a good central defender. And so I think the, the core of their team is going to be leaving after this season. But after those three or four guys, I don't know how many others can command a transfer into the Premier League, or at least into into a, a side that's not going to just be in a relegation battle again. Um, and so Aston Villa, they might hold on to some of their players because, again, um, money-wise, no one's going to be able to buy or will want to buy them. Um, but they are going to be having some issues because even the ones they do sell, I don't think they're going to be able to sell for, for that much money. And they don't have fans coming in. So I think their, their monetary issues like Fulham, are going to be a little bit worse going back down. And, you know, I, I mean, think about this. If, if you're a, not even just a big six club, if you're a middling club, uh, or if you're someone, you know, somewhere around 12th, how many players from Aston Villa are really piquing your interest? You know what? We need that guy. We need Trezeguet. We need Keenan Davis. I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know how many, how many teams are going to be banging down the door for them. So I think Aston Villa... Uh, unfortunately, may hold on to a lot of their their players, even if they go down, or when they go down. One bonus question for you here, Drew. It's just coming to my mind. Nathan Ake, if he does go down with Bournemouth, could you see Chelsea activating their claws and bringing him back? I think they will. However, what I think they're going to do is is buy him back and then resell him. Oh, really? Uh, be, yeah. For some reason, I... I I think Nathan Ake is a very good defender. I, I'm pretty sure he's left-footed, so he would be great to be on the left side of central defense. I don't think Chelsea have a left-footed central defender, so that would be a big plus to them. But I, I don't. everything I read, it's, it seems like they don't really rate him high enough to bring him back. So I, I think they're going to try and turn a profit. I know Manchester City is interested, him, interested in him, and so are a lot of other clubs. So I actually think Chelsea, if they buy him back, are just going to turn around and resell him uh, and try and make some money off of them. With that said, Cole, they are going to flip for profit. Do Tottenham enter the stage? Because they're looking for a left-sided centre-back in the summer as well. Yeah, it's, it's a real strange one with Aki, isn't it? Because you can watch him sometimes and be really impressed. And then you can have other games where you just think, oh, yeah, I, I'm not so sure. Is he that player that could take you to the next level, uh, next level up as such? 
um, or are there better options out there? I have to say, he seems pretty solid. Um, so right now, to be honest, if you offered me a choice between, say, Ake and Dyer or Sanchez, I would probably take Ake over both of those two, to be honest, to begin with. So, you know, like I say, I, I certainly wouldn't, if you turn around and in the summer it came out that Spurs had brought him, I wouldn't be going, oh, what have we brought him for? Um, would I be sitting there thinking, yes, this is a signing that's going to shore us up massively and help us progress? Again, I would be like, mm, I'm not so sure. Solid, uh, but like as Drew said, if Chelsea don't particularly, you know, why haven't Chelsea brought him back in so far in all the time that they've had and that he's been away from them and started using him? So maybe there is just a feeling he, he isn't, as good as needed to be at the top level. Right, let's fire it to the upper reaches of the Premier League table. And Cole, whisper it quietly, but Manchester United are actually becoming quite fun to watch because eight goals in the last two matches after back-to-back wins over Brighton and Bournemouth, it's now nine league games unbeaten for the Red Devils. And like I say, they're hitting quite their stride, aren't they? Yeah, I've been really impressed with them since coming back. You know, I mean, we can, you know, we I think we said it just before lockdown, but, you know, Bruno Fernandes has hit the ground running uh, and been brilliant, isn't he? You know, he pulls a lot of the strings for them. Um, there's a real creative spark there. He looks like he's galvanised them. He looks like he's also galvanised Pogba because I think now you can see Pogba's got some competition in there. So maybe that spurred him on to perform as well. But, you know, going forward, United look really good. Um, and actually, you know, if that. I just think if United can shore themselves up at the back, I honestly think they could be real contenders for a top four spot and possibly, you know, within the title race up till, you know, maybe Christmas or something next season. But unfortunately, that defence, I think, will hold them back if they don't bring in some real good signings. Because we saw again, you know, the way Maguire was done for one of the goals and and the way he was done when they played Spurs by that pace. That is a real issue for United and, and that will be their Achilles heel um, if they don't improve. But going forward, I think they're clicking into a really good outfit. And Mason Greenwood up top, he is looking very impressive. Well, that was going to be my next question to Drew. Because personally, I've been a bit ignorant to all things Mason Greenwood. sort of not quite seen or understood the hype. In this past week, though, I get it. I've seen the light. Drew, we don't want to tout people too early, but he does look the real deal, doesn't he? Yeah, definitely right now. I mean, he is in a phenomenal piece of form right now. You know, he he's had a fairly below-the-radar season at Manchester United, right? He scored in uh, the Europa League. He he scored and and played in the, the domestic cups. But right now in the Premier League, he's showing that he has a real quality about him. I think something for me that's kind of really gotten my eye on him in the past couple of games is he's been good with both feet, right? He scored with his left. He scored with his right. And, you know, they, they weren't just tappings or anything. He's really blasted them with, with each foot. And so that's something that has surprised me. I think he's absolutely earned his spot uh, playing out on the, the right-hand side for Manchester United. And if he can continue this form, Manchester United look like one of the best teams in, in the Premier League right now. And again, based on current form, I think next year... They could be one of the teams not only competing for the top four, but a team that is possibly pushing Liverpool and Manchester City um, for the title. Right now, United look fantastic. Greenwood is is a huge spark to that attack right now. And, I mean, honestly, I think right now he looks more important to their attack than Martial and Rashford. Right now, if I had to, if I had to say the most important players for Manchester United at the moment, Bruno Fernandes. And then I think you can make an argument for Mason Greenwood. He has been that good in the past few matches, and he looks like he's gonna he's gonna be phenomenal for the next five or eight years at Manchester United. As you know, like every young player, as long as he continues to progress, as long as he keeps his head down, as long as he doesn't get injured, insert all those caveats. But right now he looks phenomenal, and Manchester United really have a gem on their hands. Cole, obviously United doing their best to finish in the top four, as are Wolves, but their hopes took a hit at the weekend after defeat to Arsenal. And on the face of it, you'd have to say, a very good win for the Gunners. Yeah, couldn't believe that result, Dan. Absolutely gutted, you know, mm. after you know, <laughs> the way we put <laughs> in the week before. Um, yeah, didn't see that result at all, to be honest. A bit like the um, Chelsea slip-up at West Ham. You looked at the fixtures and just thought, the way Wolves are playing and the way they've come back, 
the way Arsenal play and, you know, the way that we know they're susceptible at the back, you just thought Wolves will have too much for them and probably run out comfortable, you know, 3-1, 2-0 winners. So really surprised when Arsenal got that result. But full credit to them because that's not an easy place to go. Wolves are a great side. Um, and, yeah, you know, what can you say? You know, you just have to give credit where it is due. And they deserved it for that game because they played really well. Wolves weren't at the races at all, to be honest. Not sure what happened there because given how tight the races, you would have think they would have been looking at that game going, well, this is certainly three points we can do with and help our push for that top four, top five position. So they'll be really disappointed by that result. And Drew, for touting the next generation of stars on this podcast, Bukayo Saka has had quite the week. A new contract, a first goal for the Gunners, and what a goal it was to open the scoring at Molyneux. Yeah, I mean, acrobatically, being able to get his foot around the ball and score that one. The the thing that is great about Saka is, right, for a lot of the season, he played more as, as, a, as an attacking left back, essentially. Now they had him on the right wing. And so I, I think this versatility is going to be a huge um, advantage to him. And for Arsenal, of course, as, as you said, they just uh, he just signed a new contract with them. You know, if he's able to play on the right side when they need it in attack, if he's able to play as a defender or maybe a, a left wing back at times, I think that's going to be a huge, huge plus for them. He's been, he's had a fantastic season. I think he's definitely a candidate for for young player of the year in the Premier League. And this goal, I think, w- was just another example of how good he can be, right? I know Arsenal have, have had their issues all year, whether it's defense or attacking-wise, but I think Saka, especially as young as he is, has shown that he can be someone that, at least for the moment, they can rely on. Uh, maybe not to be their main man, obviously that's going to be Aubameyang, but somebody who can be in support and provide them, whether it's assists, he's got a lot of those this year, or if he's going to be farther up front and more in the box and be able to score like he did against Wolves, I think they have, this is another young player um, that I think can be a gem for their current team. So I think Arsenal made exactly the right move by having him sign a new contract, and I think Saka is going to be someone that develops very, very well under Arteta because, again, he has that versatility to play in attack, in defense, on the left, on the right, and I think Arsenal right now, they're going to have to to keep him there, keep him happy because I think he's going to develop into a really good player as well. Right, that's filled the nice things about Arsenal quota for probably the rest of the season. So where should we go next? <laughs> let's go to uh, let's go to Leicester. They've had a mixed week. Carl, they certainly will feel like they dodged a bullet after Chelsea's slip up in midweek, but they found a first restart win at the weekend over Palace. And when you consider where Roy's men are on the table, that was almost perfect opposition to go up against. Yeah, I think, you know, Palace were one of those sides where we talked about the restart and coming up against sides that were just on the beach and probably just going through the motions. And like, as you say, Leicester probably couldn't have wished for better opponents to kind of kickstart their their restart. Um, pretty comfortable game for them. You know, they did what they needed to against a poor Palace, really. Um but again, you know, one player that comes out of this game that you just have to take your hat off to is Jamie Vardy, you know, up to 100 goals now. And when you consider where he was and how late he came into the, you know, kind of top level game, then he has been phenomenal for them. Um, and just, you know, a player that I think many of the top sides probably should have taken a punt on um, a couple of seasons ago. But that result could really, you know, give Leicester a good kickstart and again makes it interesting for that top four now because they got the present that West Ham gave them that they wouldn't have been expecting and now you know those those three points things are looking a lot more positive for them. And Drew we mentioned Jamie Vardy now he's got that century and the sort of the pressure of getting over the line will that unlock more goals in the race for the golden boot and do you think he'll be the man who goes on and wins the accolade? You know I I, want to say yes because of overall the season that he has had and, and Leicester. Um, but I'm hesitant to do so. And and the reason is because Arsenal, I think, have been way better since the restart. Plus, right against Palace, when, when Vardy scored, I believe it was his first of the two, it kind of came from a Palace mistake, and he just had a wide-open net in front of him. And, of course, you have to finish it. You have to create those chances uh, defensively and then, you, and then transition into attack very quickly, as, as they did. But... I, I'm not sure. I'm not sold on Leicester yet um, and Vardy continuing this this good run of form because, again, 
it was a mistake from Crystal, from Crystal Palace that they really took advantage of. And so Vardy this year, I, I know you guys love expected goals. I know it's your favorite stat, but he has far outperformed expected goals. And I think since the restart, you saw him kind of level off and and revert to uh, the mean or, or kind of the, the expectation statistically. And so while he got two goals here, and congratulations, he deserves it. He deserves all the praise for, you know, 100 goals in the Premier League and, and everything like that. I'm just not sold on it. I want to see more, uh, I believe it's today, when when Arsenal and Leicester play. Yep. Then I think after that match, let's see, can Vardy do it again? Can Leicester get up again for this one? And then I'd be more keen to, to kind of um, either back him or Aubameyang in the race for for the golden boot. So I'm not quite sold on Vardy yet. Let's see how they do today. I like it. You're hedging your bets. Another team that are hedging their bets in terms of a takeover, Cole Newcastle. What is going on there? Because Steve Bruce, unbeaten in six, which you consider the squad he's got, is nothing short of a miracle, really. And it's almost very harsh that he might be out of a job. But then the more this goes on, will this takeover even happen? Yeah, it's really gone quiet, isn't it now? You know, obviously during lockdown, we had, you know, it was almost seemed like it was imminent, was going to happen. You know, they're touting new managers to come in. Everyone's saying, well, if they get this sort of money, then they're going to be the next Man City. And then since then, nothing. You know, it's kind of now like, what is going on? Um, their form, that they've been really impressive, you know. And I think, I say, they would have been disappointed to only pick up a point against West Ham at home. They probably would have felt they should have gone on and won that game and got three more points on the board. Bruce has done a really good job. You know, when you consider that he's taken over from Benitez um, and lots of people, you know, weren't happy with his appointment. But he's actually done as good a job as Benitez, if not better, um, this season. So he has done really well. You still feel, though, don't you, that if their takeover happens there, he won't be the name that those new owners want in charge and they will look for that big name manager to come in and kickstart the whole process. It would be harsh on him, but I think the one thing and the one good thing you could say is that his reputation has gone right up this season. So if he was to leave Newcastle, he won't be short of any offers at the moment. Well, this is it, Drew, isn't it? Because when we talk about the stock market for managers, his stock is quite high. And now if he is pushed out the exit door somewhat unfairly, at least he won't be short of job offers. Whereas if he takes Newcastle down, his stock plummets quite quickly. So he's in a good sort of position himself, whether that's over at Newcastle or somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely think that's true that his stock is high right now. But how many teams, whether that's coming up from the championship or, or teams, you know, towards the bottom part of the Premier League, how many of them like that style of play, guys, we're going to sit back, defend for our lives, and just try and hit on the counter or something like that. You know, all the rage right now, not not just in the Premier League, but around, you know, most of the top leagues in Europe, is to play more the open, sexy, smooth style of, of, of play. And so I, I just don't know how many teams want to take Steve Bruce, unless you're a team that's just trying to survive in the Premier League, like, you know, someone like Crystal Palace, not that... Roy Hodgson is necessarily leaving this year, um, Watford or something like that, maybe a team like that, but then you're just kind of in a relegation fight again. So I do agree that Steve Bruce is probably in one of the uh, better parts of his managerial career, especially in terms of like interests and stock, but I don't really see that many teams wanting to to sign him or, or to hire him just because I I don't know how much he really changes things at at any of these clubs, how much better he's going to make them. You know, I'm not trying, I'm not trying to be a negative Nancy here, but I just don't think that many teams are, are going to be banging down his door. It's unfortunate that at Newcastle, if the takeover happens, he's probably going to get, he's going to get the sack right away. Maybe they give him a year or something like that, but he hasn't really changed the football from when Rafa was there all that much. And so again, congratulations to him. He, he definitely earned, earned a lot of respect this year and deserves a lot of praise. I just don't know how many good jobs are really going to be on the table for him. Yeah, he might have to go back down the ladder to come back up, but there'll always be someone. There's always a job for Steve Bruce. He's one of the the good guys in football, and I think club chairman will look at what he's done this season, and it might not be as glamorous as Newcastle, but there'll be work somewhere. 
Right, so we've got about 35 seconds to go, so I'm going to quickly whittle through what's left on the notes. Burnley, seven points from nine. All we ever talk about is they want to finish high, but not too high, so that's them done. Sheffield United versus Spurs, that's on another podcast. I'm not going through that. Spurs versus Everton is going to be done tonight on another podcast. That's the Coming New Spurs podcast with me and Carl. So we'll talk about that in depth. I don't know how deep it can go because it was a bit of a stinker, but listen to that one. And that pretty much is it. So I just need to do the admin, which is as simple as thanking my co-host, as per usual, Drew. Another sterling effort. Thank you so much, mate. Yeah, well, thank you for having me on, Dan. I'm glad we didn't talk too much Spurs. I enjoyed that. Definitely enjoyed <laughs> talking Chelsea a lot more. So thank you for that. Appreciate it. And of course, Carl, great to talk to you as always. The pleasure is all ours, Drew. And Carl, thank you ever so much, mate. Yeah, cheers, Dan. And Drew, I'm pretty glad we didn't talk too much Spurs, to be honest given the way performances have gone. Um, but yeah, no, I really enjoyed this chat. You know, we, we've got so much to get through, haven't we, now with this restart and the way it's going. But I'll tell you what, I'm enjoying it. And like I say, talking to you guys every Tuesday, I always enjoy that. So looking forward to next week. Top man. Right, with that said, it just leaves me to say that my name's Dan Tracy. This is The Real Football Cast. And until next time... Goodbye. Sports Social Podcast Network.